I remember coming home from school and nobody being home a few times and and being like, oh my God, I've been left behind, you know? Oh crap, I'm going to be here for seven more years and I'm going to have my head chopped off, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hello, this is Rob from Portland, Oregon. I'm Beyond the Box Podcast. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. everyone to Beyond the Box. This is Ray, and I'm so glad to be with you guys today. I think we've got something really special for you today. Um, Not that other times aren't special. (laughs) Hopefully all of our conversations are special, but anyway, today we have something really good for you. This is a conversation I had with Brad Jerzak two or three months ago, and it has to do with something that Brad is calling a theology of consent. And it's got some really interesting ramifications, some really good um, applications to what it means to pray um, about the problem of evil and just all sorts of stuff. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. So let's join the conversation between me and Brad on a theology of consent. We are excited once again to have Brad Jerzak on the podcast with us. Brad, thank you so much for joining us again today. My pleasure. Happy to be with you. I tell you, I've I've really enjoyed, uh, we've had some really good interaction, not just in our conversations, but over email, um, thinking out loud some things that you're kind of working through. I think, is this for your doctoral dissertation, or what What exactly is this for that we're working on? Yeah, that's true. It's a PhD dissertation. Okay. Um, you've actually been talking about the idea, I've been calling it a theology of consent. Is that is that what, what you're terming it? I think I'm going to do that as well. Yeah, I, okay. I uh, sort of the long version is a theology of the cross and a cosmology of consent. Unless that um, <laughs> uh, intimidate anyone, it's, it's really the bottom line is, uh, you know, what? Why does God allow stuff? <laughs> mm, that's and, good. And and uh, really, that's that's a very people should know that this, this is a really important question for theologians and philosophers, and some of us think they're up in their ivory towers just thinking abstract thoughts, but really they're wrestling with uh, the very stuff of life, you know? Why is yeah. my baby sick? Who, that's right. Whose sin was this? <laughs> you know, that, that stuff. Right. And uh, so that's what God's given me the privilege of spending a, uh, about three years just to meditate on some of these questions, and I'm I, I may be starting to get revelation, but that needs some weighing and testing, and I'm willing to do it in this realm. Well, I tell you, Brad, I want to first say thank you for even letting me in on this whole process. I feel so privileged to actually be thinking through these things with you, kind of in the, I don't know if I'd call it the um, infant stages, but 
you know, before you've, before you've put it into book form, it's just been a real privilege to be able to kick ideas around with you and, and, uh, just really appreciate you letting me in on this, you know, for a long time, um, a lot of, a lot of our listeners will know some of my background, but I was telling you before we started recording that, um, you know, I, I grew up Southern Baptist and as a good Southern Baptist boy in the South, uh, I was taught that God was all powerful in the sense that anything that happens to you comes directly from the hand of God that, uh, and which was kind of strange to me because they would accuse the devil of some things, but ultimately it was always God. So it was almost like the devil was just kind of God's henchman. But, um, anyway, for years I grew up under that. Uh, but then I was exposed to the word of faith movement, which a lot of you guys might be familiar with. And I, I jumped from, I don't want to say exactly jumped from one ditch into the other, but, um, I, I got really steeped in the word of faith movement, went to a word of faith Bible college uh, or Bible school and, um, really got into this idea and was very thankful for getting into the idea of God is only good all the time. Everything God does is good. Um, the big, I guess the big downfall was the role that faith played was almost overstated in that, um, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a matter of your faith would bring you things from God, or that's the way you received God's blessings or whatever. But there was almost, um, somewhat, I don't want to overstate it, but maybe of an accusatory role where if someone wasn't living up to the standard that another believer inside that movement felt that they needed to be living up to, that they were almost looked at as not having enough faith or not being spiritual enough or, or something like that. So I feel like with what I've been talking about with you, that you are really kind of coming in the middle and striking a balance between, yes, um, there is a sense in which God is only good, and that's true, but and that our faith does have something to do with it, but at the end of the day, that there's other circumstances involved in this whole thing too. So I'd love for you to kind of introduce this idea of the theology of consent, kind of tell people exactly what it is that, that you're thinking, and, and then maybe we can just break it down from there. Okay. Well, uh, um, I think you've, you've sort of framed it really well personally, um, and, and there's a corresponding issue that happened historically. You know, we talk about 9-11 and how everything changed around 9-11. That, that was, that's going to be this extremely memorial date in history because it, it shifted our way of seeing the world in a lot of ways. Well, there was another date like that. And um, it was in, on November 1st, 1755. And it was All Saints Day. And the people in Lisbon, Portugal, um, 100,000 of them were in church worshiping on All Saints Day in six major cathedrals. And what happened that day was this, this earthquake hit during worship. So here's these people praising God, and then the, the earth starts shaking, and these cathedrals crash down on their heads. Huh. And the survivors end up fleeing the buildings, and the only place that there's any uh, you know, safety, it appears, is the harbor. So they run down to the harbor, and within about 45 minutes, a tsunami comes and wipes them out on the beach. Wow. And the earthquake then triggered these fires that ended up lasting a week. They destroyed the city. The waves went from there uh, to Spain, down to Morocco. Whole towns were swept away. 
Uh, um, and the death toll is, you know, they think 60 to 100,000 people in one shot. Wow. And and what happened was that this disaster, um, it really demanded a response. Because up till then, there was this real optimism that century. There was a saying, all is well. And, and it was the idea, God is sovereign. God is in control. We have every reason for optimism because he is taking the world forward and... and, and and it sounded great, except now here's a hundred thousand worshippers being wiped out, and so you've got all the major theologians and philosophers have to make a statement, right? So you've got, um, um, you know, John Wesley, who, who says, "Oh, this is definitely divine retribution. This is punishment." Wow. Wow. Or you've got Immanuel Kant, and he's saying, "You know what? God is good, but I don't get this. This this makes no sense." Or you've got a guy named, the the most sort of powerful voice at the time was Voltaire, who was a, who became a real, like an atheist through this, because he's saying, if God is in control, if he is actively involved in history, then he is immoral to have done mm. this. And that's mm. the thing, is if he had done it, maybe he would have been immoral, right? Yeah. So, yeah. and he ends up, um, you know, writing writing this poem that's just devastating to the faith. And, and, and he's just expressing his heart. He's saying, like, oh, unhappy mortals, oh, deplorable ground, oh, the mortals' appalling assembly. So they're all in church, right? And then, and then they're saying, all is well, and he's saying, run, contemplate these dreadful ruins, these remains, these scraps, these unhappy ashes, and these piled-up women, these children, one on another, Lisbon is damaged and one's dancing in Paris. Will you, before the mass of victims, claim that God is revenged, that their mm. death repays their crimes? So, I mean, he he just comes against this idea that, you know, that God could have caused this, but if our theology of God is that he causes everything, and he's, you know, we sing all the time, he is in control, it's like, then why would he allow this? And it was mm. one of the major trigger points in the Enlightenment, when people wow. gave up on God... Um, saving the world, and they went into a deeper ditch, which was now man is going to save the world through science and technology, and will <laughs> overcome chance, and it's like, oh my goodness, that was really naive, and that well, ended the 20th, up being splattered the, by World the War One. Century, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. The twentieth century yeah. kind of proved that that way didn't work, didn't it? <laughs> it really did. I mean, that was the end of modernity, really. And so, so this is the question: It's like, why did why does he allow this? Um, so at, maybe your uh, listeners have heard that, you know, it's a common phrase, the problem of evil. Yeah. And, and that's what they were dealing with then, and that's what we're still de- dealing with now. And here's the idea of the problem of evil. How can God be all-powerful, plus God be perfectly good, and also there be evil in the world? And... Um, and to hold all three together is is it's actually truly problematic you know if, yeah. we, if god really loves me and he can do anything then why would he allow a sexual assault why would he allow a tsunami to wipe away children and so on so that's what we're working on mm. and um but I, I'm not going to despair actually <laughs> yeah so that's yeah. where this idea of consent comes in um, 
do you want to share anything more before I, I say it? No, I, I think you've, I think you framed the, the problem pretty well. You know, this is something that, as a matter of fact, I remember being, uh, last year, Steve and I and Steve's son, um, we were, uh, we went to see, oh, golly, I can't believe his name's escaping me at the moment. You'll know exactly who I'm talking about. UNC Chapel Hill professor, uh, Bart Ehrman. Took me a minute. Bart Ehrman. We went to see Bart Ehrman. And you know, Bart, he, uh, he was an evangelical Christian who, uh, graduated from Wheaton, um, college, which, you know, is like the bastion of evangelical faith. And he ended up going to Princeton to do his graduate studies. And as a result, he ended up leaving the faith. And we went to see him at a small college locally, um, last year it was, and he was doing a talk on something, but anyway, someone in the crowd asked him why he had abandoned his faith. And this is the whole reason he had abandoned his faith was the problem of evil. He said that um, all of the answers that he had ever read, every all the research he had ever done, was not a satisfactory answer because, as you said, if God was all good and yet all powerful, then, in the words of Desi Arnaz, he got some splaining to do, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think well, that, I, I think this is a huge thing. I think there's a lot of people that have either abandoned their faith or maybe they've retrenched themselves in a form of fundamentalism to protect themselves from having to address these questions. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, uh, so where I start with that then is, as I said, let's take the three premises. God, um, number one, evil does exist. And, and so that's number one. And I would say that's an irreducible. In other words, um, we can't deny that tremendous affliction dominates the earth in some ways. It's not just here and there. It's like uh, it's many, many people, maybe the majority of humankind's experience of life is affliction. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, not just the evil that people do, but, you know, you can't you can't really blame uh, even Adam and Eve for earthquakes. <laughs> right. The uh, tectonic <laughs> plates of the Earth had have to shift in order to, for our planet to stay in rotation, and mm. unfortunately, that causes earthquakes, volcanoes, and things like that. That, that really, I mean, the the, the way our our world exists, uh, people experience evil if that means whatever it is that enslaves us, oppresses us, dehumanizes us, victimizes us. Gravity itself does that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and then second, uh, the second premise is that, that I would come in with is God is all good. And, I, and, and I'm going to make that a faith statement. I don't believe I can prove my way to that statement. Right. I have reasons for it, but at the end of the day, um, I've chosen to believe that, and I've given myself, um, I try to articulate God's goodness rationally, but really from beginning to end, it's a revelation. It's something mm-hmm. God has, has turned on in our hearts, and, and either we believe it or we don't yet. Yeah. And, and so I, I feel like I can turn toward this as a real premise, um, and, I, and when I turn towards the goodness of God, I actually experience it as true, even in my tragedies. Mm, mm. And I can turn from, uh, I can turn from the goodness of God, and finally just despair. And so, I choose this premise that God is good. Period. You know, that's yeah, a firm yeah. bedrock. 
Then the third premise, and this is this is where the debate really is: God is all powerful. Mm. Um, what do we mean by that? Because uh, when someone is being murdered, God isn't acting all powerful. Right. When a Christian gets in a car accident and dies, you know, a friend of mine, uh, she was so afraid of dying in a car accident, and I said, God won't let that happen. We'll just pray. And you know, within two years, she died in a car accident, and the witnesses could wow. hear her screaming as she was burning alive in the car. Oh my! And goodness. I'm like, and I've got I've got hundreds of stories like that. So so I get it when guys like Voltaire or the fellow that you mentioned, when they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> wow! And and so he doesn't act all powerful in time. You know, tornadoes actually hit churches on Easter Sunday sometimes, and That's and right. people die, and so. So when we say he's all-powerful, I'm thinking that's the weak point. We need to really define that. And I'd say he, he is all-powerful in two ways. One is he made the universe. Like, he set it up, he created it, and, and, uh, and as a whole, he holds it together. And the other way that he's all-powerful is that uh, he has chained himself from micromanaging it. Mm. Um, when people ask, why does God allow this or God allow that, I, I think that's a pretty tricky question because uh, it implies that he's sitting there with a rubber stamp. And it's like, well, um, no, you can't be raped. Oh, yeah, you can be. Yeah. Or yeah. this tornado, I think I'll make this tornado move away from the coast. Oh, no, this one can hit Haiti. And, well, I think, and, I think when we say somebody allows something, yeah. There's not a there's not as much of a sense in which that person is complicit in the act. But when you're talking about someone who who you say is completely sovereign over every situation and every choice that's ever been or ever will be, then all of a sudden his allowance becomes his complicity in evil, really. Exactly. Uh, no and yet there well perhaps even more than that if 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 he's choosing which things to allow, then it's then it really is complicity. Yeah. Now, what if this is true? Um, God doesn't do control. What he has done is he's created a, a universe of free people um, and natural law, and he has he has consented um, to to uh, to it in in love. You know, that I'm going to allow space. Um, that's kind of tragic, too, and in a sense it's complicity as well. But what I'm saying is he, he, he consents to the world doing what the world does. And I would say that's not a theological point. That's like, just look. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's experience. <laughs> <laughs> just just w- w- watch the news for one year. Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, so I've written a little a little intro that I'm going to that I would say, and it would be like this, God is good, period. God is love, period. God is not violent, because he never does violence directly. In his love, God will not bring about his ends directly through violent means. But in refusing to exercise violence, God consents to letting us be violent. Mm. His love consents to our violence against each other. His love consents to our violence even against him. Mm. God's consent is not complicity, but God appears complicit 
in our violence because God allows it. That is to say, when God refuses to apply force, might, or violence, but instead consents to our free rebellion and its bitter and violent fruit, God seems violent in his consent. In love, God consents to our wrath against his Son on the cross. He consents to our son, our wrath against Rome. He consents to ra- Rome's wrath against us. His consent is wrath. His consent is love. Hmm. But that's a bit of an intro to this idea of why does God allow this or that? Well, he kind of allows everything. Mm. Mm. So you're saying that his consent really is a double-edged sword because his consent manifests itself both as love and as wrath. Talk about that a little bit. Okay. So his consent manifests as love because he gives us permission uh, to live. He gives us permission uh, to move. He doesn't control us like robots and so on. And this won't solve the whole problem of evil because it doesn't, it still doesn't address, you know, earthquakes. <laughs> but yeah, even there, exactly. he, he consents to the world and the natural forces of the world. He consents to the weather. He, can, mm. he doesn't manipulate every weather report. Um, he consents to the, uh, y- you know, both to nature and to people. And, and um, if he didn't, we, we would say that's not love. He's forcing us. He's manipulating us. He's, and so on. But it's also, it, it is also wrath in, in this sense. In Romans 1, Paul clarifies it. All of those judgments we saw in the Old Testament, Paul says, actually, that's God giving us over to our own choices. Mm-hmm. Um, there are consequences for our choices, and in his consent, we experience those consequences, and then we call it wrath. <laughs> and the Bible is not ashamed to call it wrath, but by Romans 5 already, it's clear that this is, Jesus is saving us from wrath, but it's it's not the wrath of God in the sense of he's got to save us from God. What he's saving us from is, is the death sentence that we live under. Mm. And, uh, from the natural consequences of our law-breaking, basically. Yeah, and I would add supernatural consequences, too, in, in, yeah. in the sense that uh, I believe that there is some kind of demonic realm, whatever that is, and that I open the door to oppression from the enemy as well. And, and and that's a supernatural consequence of, of my decisions. Mm, mm. I would say God can only work in my life as I consent, but that's also true of the devil. <laughs> he can oh. only work by permission. And so, um, by, and it doesn't mean conscious permission even one to one or the other. I, I give God uh, permission in my life unknowingly all the time, just every time I'm kind. Uh, mm. I'm, I'm generous. That's consent to God. So now here's the beauty of it. Um, although God can only work in this world through our consent, when we give that consent, it gives him space to work, just as he gave us space to work. Mm. Mm. So that that consent is almost like, it's almost like a, like a, um, a double hinged door. Yep. That it's just simply a door into our world and we're kind of the, I guess one of the things I've thought about for a long time, I've had kind of a metaphor that's ran around my head for a number of years now. And that's, um, a metaphor of, of a lease agreement. You know, when you, when you set up a lease agreement, you have someone who owns a property and they, for a predetermined amount of time 
give over control of that property to someone else under the, and under the lease agreement, that person is in full control of that property and the owner can't do anything to that property without the permission of the leasee um, until that, until that lease agreement is uh, terminated or, or whatever. And I wonder, I've wondered for a long time if that's not really the relationship that this world has with God, that while God is the owner and the creator, you know, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, while he owns the thing, he's given us, um, you know, in Genesis 1, that he gave, gave us authority over everything on the earth and over the earth itself, and he told us to tend it and keep it. And therefore, whatever happens is more the result of us as tenants um, allowing those things to go on than it is the result of he is the owner performing those things. And also the fact that, which it kind of, um, to bring up another point about what you were talking about, it kind of gets us into this idea of divine intervention. Um, because the way you hear most Christians talk about divine intervention, that for instance, as you were saying before, that a crime is getting ready to be perpetrated against someone and they've either prayed or something seemingly supernatural happens that they get delivered from, from that. Or, and then there's another person that seems to be just as spiritual and just as much walking with the Lord who doesn't get delivered. And we seem to, to chalk it up to divine intervention. And if I get what you're saying, right, you're saying that you wouldn't even call, uh, what goes on divine intervention. you, you in one of the emails you sent me, you uh, defined divine intervention as the the interruption of God's natural laws by God. And what you're saying with your theology of consent is that God doesn't actually ever break God's law. Is that what you're saying? That is what I'm saying. That that uh, if we mean, and that's a fairly narrow definition of intervention that I'm choosing to use, where I'm saying God um, sovereignly interrupting. Um, uh, human freedom or natural law, uh, to, like actually violating those things. I'm saying he doesn't do that. If he did do that, he's not very good at it. He should be mm-hmm. doing it way more. So then, um, uh, that could sound like I'm a deist. Like a deist is a person who believes God wound up the universe and now he's off hiding in his corner somewhere while we run the show. That's not yeah. what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God's grace does operate in this world, but uh, he decided at the outset, for whatever reason, uh, that he would only uh, that that he would only infuse uh, the operations of grace into the world through people. We are the image of God on earth, um, and so that his whenever we consent to it. Instead of intervening, what happens is his supernatural love pours in wherever it finds consent. And mm-hmm. that's powerful. And that's why miracles do happen. Not because he's intervening in, in that sense of, I'm going to interrupt things and break the law. But actually, we're making space for the highest natural law, which is love. It's almost like that Revelation 3 thing, isn't it, where Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. Yeah. But yeah. The, the implicit... Uh, idea there is that somebody's got to open the door or he doesn't come in and, and fix things. You know, it's kind of like the landlord who stands at the door and knocks at the door of the apartment saying, I'm willing to fix the pipes if you'll let me in, you know? Yeah. I really think you're onto something with this lease agreement idea because not only does it, um, 
it rings true to our reality, and also it rings true to the Gospels, where where God is coming, and you know, there's tenants in the vineyard, or there's managers that He's left in charge, and all of that, and and uh, you know, Jesus shows up <laughs> sort of to see, okay, how's it going? And uh, unfortunately, what we did is uh, we didn't like when the owner showed up, and we mm. we killed him, and and. Uh, there's a parallel to that in the Lord of the Rings story, of course, where the, the steward of, of the one city, he didn't like that the returning king was coming. He liked running the show, yeah. even though running the show leads to destruction. And that, I mean, that's the testimony of my life. <laughs> when yeah. I'm running the show um, and, and not giving my, another word would be surrender, right? I uh, Saying, okay, God, not my will, but thine be done. Well, that's such a relief to God, I would think, because at the outset, in creation and at the cross, really, God is saying to us, not my will, but thine be done. Mm. What, a, mm. what a horrible thing to do, wow. but, but he did it, because wow. that, that's what love required. Wow, I've never, wow, I've just never thought that through. So basically, Jesus, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, not my will, but thine be done. It's almost like... It's almost like he's completing that old creation of, you know, of the independent will and yeah. surrendering. It, it's like, it's almost like that, that will of being submitted and surrendered to God was broken with Adam because Adam chose to do his own thing. And Jesus is almost like bringing it full circle as the last Adam and saying, I surrender it back to you. Uh, I, I don't, I've never thought about that. The fact that God was actually turning his. Wow, God was turning his will yeah. over to us. Whoa. Yeah, God, God turned his will over to us. And and so, yeah, you're exactly right. So now here's Jesus as a man on behalf of all men and women, turning his will back over to God. This is the other beautiful thing about it. It would be horrible if, if it was only, okay, God has consented to the will of man on this earth. That would be just horrible. Except for one thing, Jesus is the pinnacle of humanity. He, wow. He, and so, oh, okay, if Jesus' surrender back to God counts as well, then anything's possible now. Mm. Mm. So basically, Jesus becomes the prototype, and the, the well, the first fruits, like the New Testament says, he's the first fruits. And so we become surrendered vessels just like Jesus was through the imitation of Jesus. Yes, 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 that's it. Wow. Um, exactly. Now, one of the other things about this that's really important to me is is we've got evangelicals who uh, often literalize the violence of the Old Testament, mm. and we've got others who've given up on the Bible because of the violence in the Old Testament. And, and what I'm seeing in this is that um, is a lot of that violence just fits into this model. So, for example... Um, when we talk about God's wrath, well, didn't God slaughter Egypt's firstborn? Didn't God massacre Jewish grumblers in the wilderness? Didn't God incinerate Sodom and Gomorrah? Didn't God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? Didn't he eat Herod alive with worms? And it's like, uh, yes and no. <laughs> uh, first of all, no. The, were these acts of a violent intervention by this angry punitive God who was reacting to sin? I don't think so. I, the causes are actually described in the Bible. They're ascribed to the destroyer, to angelic or human agents of violence, or to Satan himself. 
in, in all of those passages. And then God protects or ceases to protect the victims depending on their consent or their repentance or their surrender or their intercession. It's like, I want to help you here. Will you let me help you here? Mm. So, um, so, so no, he's not, it's not so much God's wrath, but on the other hand, okay, yes, it's his wrath in that he has consented to allow natural and supernatural destruction to take its course. Um, when we set it in motion through our decisions. So his wrath, instead of being an active, like almost an active wrath, whereby he's chasing down the sinner to make sure they get their just rewards, instead it's like a, it's almost like a passive wrath where he says, okay, if you want to, if you want to go your own way, then just know that, you know, if you play in the street, you know, if you if you play with fire, you're going to get burnt, type thing. Yeah, yeah, I, and and as I said before, I think that's exactly what Paul's trying to explain in Romans 1. When I say wrath, I mean giving you over. I mean letting you, <laughs> and and oh. and letting you is going to hurt. And so, um, and unfortunately for for us, because I don't think it's a Bible problem. I think it's a modern problem where we just have a, a, have trouble seeing that wrath is a metaphor in the Bible, and we make it all literal. Like, like as if God is seething and, and he's got to get this thing off his chest and he lashes out with his big, horrible temper. It's, well, it kind of does describe it that way, but whether they knew it was a metaphor or not for this mm. passive consequences thing, Jesus certainly told us that it was. You know, Luke 13, it's like, hey, when that tower fell down or when those yeah. guys were slaughtered over there, they, they didn't do anything worse than anybody else. That's just how it works. Mm. You know, <laughs> mm. or uh, hey, the the God doesn't pick which crop to make His sun shine on and which crops to let the rain go on. It, it's just this, this is how it works, you know. Or like how they how the disciples said, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus was like, neither. <laughs> you don't yeah, get yeah. it. <laughs> the the whole right. point of the story is not that how how he came to be in this condition, but the fact that God's will is to deliver him from the condition. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. You know, one, just as an example of one of the things you're saying, I think it's really interesting. Um, in the Old Testament, there, and I, I can't remember the references here, Brad, but there's one place, I think it's either in like First or Second Samuel, where it talks about God sending an evil spirit to someone. Uh-huh. And then you have the same story recounted in First or Second Chronicles, the exact same story, years later, several hundred years later. Um, and it's saying it actually instead of saying God sent the evil spirit, it says that Satan sent an evil spirit. And I think that's a perfect example of what you're saying. It's like God seems complicit in it because He doesn't stop it. But in the real world, it was actually not Him who sent it. Right. Very good. Yeah. And and so we're, we're, what we're understanding there is that the people of God in the old, in Old Testament times they're still working out. Um, they're, they're trying to, to work out a theology as things are happening, right? So this right. battle happens, and they lose. Well, what happened there? Well, maybe we sinned. Okay, anyone sinned? Yeah, I sinned. Okay, <laughs> it, it's because of sin. <laughs> and then, uh, well, well, why did Babylon come and wipe us out? Well, I mean, I guess God sent it. Um, okay, so now these wicked, evil people are coming and wiping them out because God sent them. It's like, well... Mm, so they're working it out. They're in discussion. This is part of, you know, they're, they're a progressive illumination of trying to discover who God is. And I just think 
they, that we never actually get it right, and then Jesus comes to set well, it right. I, you know, I think one of the one of the hard parts for us is we have been taught. Um, through our flat understanding, this flat inerrancy that we've applied to the Bible where everything is completely equal with everything else as far as being a revelation from God. It's almost like we've looked at someone, for instance, like Moses as being completely infallible so that everything that's it's recorded in Scripture that he said or did had to come straight from the mouth of God so that when you've got um, uh, the one guy that hid the hid the bounty in his tent, and then it was found out that he had done it. It says that the Lord said to you know bring him out before the people and his family and his his animals and his entire thing, and you know to stone him or the earth swallowed him up one time, all that kind of thing. It's like we've we've taken that as being oh God did that, but what if I'm hearing you right? What you're saying is some of these things in the Old Testament, or a lot of these things in the Old Testament, that were attributed to God weren't actually God, but it was just someone's that that's the human element of scripture where someone was putting on their, you know, whatever century glasses it was, that understanding of God and transposing uh, responsibility to God when really in reality, it wasn't him at all saying to do those things. Yeah. Now, if we don't actually read the Bible, <laughs> that would, you could sound like a heretic there. <laughs> sure. That's, you know, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> yeah, but when, but when we actually read the Bible, we, we need to ask ourselves some tough questions about some of the things that they put in God's mouth. Um, I'll give one example, just just so that um, listeners can get a sense of that really how maybe difficult or how obvious it should be to us, that clearly um, Jesus and Moses aren't speaking on the same plane at all. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the commands in Deuteronomy is this. Um, when it comes from a statute of Moses, it says, it says when you go to a city, uh, offer them peace. If they say yes to your offer of peace, uh, enslave them all. And then <laughs> if they say no to your offer of peace, uh, kill all the men, and then enslave the women and children. And if there's a woman you find attractive, cut her fingernails and toenails off, cut all her hair off, and put her in just like regular clothes, and you can have her for a month. If after a month you're dissatisfied with her, don't kill her, just let her go. Wow. And like, no, okay. I would challenge any one of your listeners to tell me the Father of Jesus commanded that. Wow. Really? Wow. The, the Father that Jesus revealed says, this is my will. And I'm like, no, I don't... I. Yes, all Scripture is inspired, but it's an inspired record of our journey towards understanding a God we didn't get. You know, mm. Mm. <laughs> um, but that's a. Or here, here'd be one other one in Samuel. It's just so brutal. First um, Samuel, it's, it's Samuel talks to Saul, and he's so he's he's got a problem with the sins of the great grandparents of the Amalekites. And, and so Samuel says to Saul, God's really mad at the Amalekites because of the sins of their grandfathers. So he wants you to go kill them all. Men, women, children, babies, even their animals. Hmm. And so Saul goes to do it, and it says uh, he gets afraid of the will of the people. And so when these Amalekites plead for mercy, he gives them mercy, which sounds like what the prophet said, right? Right. So he comes back. He comes back to um, 
to 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 Samuel and he says, "Yeah," I, and Samuel kind of he knows that he that Saul has has uh, dropped the ball. So so he says, "Well, the Lord's really mad at you," and and he he brings the leaders of the Amalekites before him and says, "Before the Lord," which means like offering a sacrifice. He he chopped them up with a sword. Man, and, and I'm like. Yeah, the Lord said to do that. Really, Brad? Is I tell that... you, just just while you're doing this, it's like, good night. It's it's like you know, I've read those scriptures. All of us, I'm sure, our listeners have all read those scriptures. But there's something about putting those scriptures in the context of saying the Father of Jesus, like you just yeah. did. Yep. That you cannot read those scriptures the same way. All of a sudden red flags and, and bells and whistles go off all over the place saying, wait a minute, something's really wrong here. But how can we, how have we for so long read the Old Testament and and seen this picture of God and somehow reconciled it with the Father of Jesus? Or, or even as Jesus himself, because if we truly believe mm. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's actually God the Son, could we could we imagine Jesus commanding that himself? Well, like, I think well, a lot. Oh, of course not. I think could a we? lot of people imagine exactly that when they read the Book of Revelation. They read the Book yeah. of Revelation and they they uh, you know this this uh, left behind type mentality right, um, right. basically has led to an image of it's almost like it's almost like God's really mad in the Old Testament. Then in the four Gospels, he gets a lot nicer. And then he goes back to being pissed off in Revelation, you yeah, know? Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, what? what where do we get this from, Brad? Yeah. Well, it's it's more recent than you might think, um, because uh, one thing I know is that that the early church would have none of it uh, by the f- end of the first century. Maybe we talked about this. I'm having deja vu, but by the end of the first century, the early church was saying, "Oh, wait a minute, something's going on." You know, they spent a hundred years seeing Jesus all over the Old Testament. And then about 100 years in, they started going, we're also seeing something else that looks nothing like Jesus. What are we going to do? And um, so some of them, like the Marcionites, said, we're just going to have to ditch the Old Testament. And uh, other ones, like the Gnostics, they came up with something like, well, the the good creator God, um, uh, he's good and perfect and loving, but this other God, Yahweh, so they made Yahweh like a lesser deity who was uh, nastier. Mm. And um, the Church looked at both those options and said, no, we're not going to do that. And so, but they decided, we can't read these texts literally, certainly not as the literal um, will of God. So they they began just um, spiritualizing them. And I think now we would we would recognize we need to come up with something else, but um, in the meantime, over the Reformation period, they went to really harsh literalism again, where they didn't feel that it was bad if God was such a nasty guy, because they were pretty nasty, you know? <laughs> it just reaffirmed them in their own evil. <laughs> really, it did. I mean, all through, I, I think of Oliver Cromwell uh, just wiping out masses and masses of people in, in England and Scotland and Wales and Ireland, um, in the name of the book of Joshua. And he would, he would preach it. He would quote it. And this is the Puritans, by the way. <laughs> the the so, Manifest Destiny. I mean, isn't the book of Joshua, wasn't that a huge influence in uh, the conquistadors or, or those people coming to America and wiping out the Native Americans? 
Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I just think, well, okay, now we're in a new era, and we're going to have to do the hard work of yeah. sorting out what we, what, now what do we think? Because we don't think that. Okay, then what do we think? Hopefully some will come along that ride. Say, what if God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus, has always been exactly like Jesus? will be the well, same yesterday, today, and forever. I think one of the key things uh, that you're hitting on, and this is one of the things I really wanted us to talk about, is um, one, of the, one of the hearts of this idea of the theology of consent is the idea that, like you said, God's, God's refusal of violence, God that, that he refuses to directly participate in violence. And, you know, Steve and I have been talking on this podcast for, gosh, probably the last two or, two or three years, um, off and on, we'll talk about nonviolence, pacifism, all these different ideas that go along with nonviolence. And, you know, we, we have taken a lot of flack for it. And some people are, have actually heard us, and, and I understand this because we have, we have really emphasized nonviolence, but some people are almost hearing us um, downplay sin as if sin isn't really the problem, it's violence. But, Brad, more and more, I'm finding that violence might really be the problem, that sin is just uh, nothing more than the fruit of the root of violence. I mean, is that overstated, do you think? I mean, I think about Genesis 6, you know, with Noah. Yeah. It says that the earth was filled with violence. That was the problem. Not that the earth was, not that they were, you know, sleeping with each other, and I, even though I'm sure that was going on, or not that they were doing all these other things, but it was violence. It wasn't just some, that they weren't keeping some religious taboos or, you know, that they weren't observing all of these, uh, all these commandments because, you know, until Moses came along, you're talking, gosh, what, what would that have been like 2,500 years after Abraham or something like that, that Moses comes onto the scene uh, during that entire time from Adam until Moses, there was no law. So it wasn't like they were breaking religious taboos. Um, obviously it had something to do with transgressions against each other, which equates violence. So when you talk about God's refusal to do violence, I mean, you're that not only for our listeners and maybe not, not as much for our listeners as for the general public, but that's revolutionary to say that God would not directly participate in violence and to still call yourself a Christian. (laughs) Yeah. And, and, I, I really believe you're onto something. <clears throat> I'll, I'll just say a minor point, and then we'll get to your major point that you've just made, because I, I think it's huge. It's, a, it's massive, and more, maybe even more than you realize. But f- first of all, I want to say, when, when I say God does, God is not directly involved in violence, I, I include in that um, uh, God doesn't command people mm. to, to violence um, so that uh, he can do it indirectly by commanding us to do it. <laughs> right, no, I'm saying right. he he won't even do that. Um, violence is, is is evil, and God is incapable of evil. Um, uh, when he says, uh, "Don't do this, or you're going to get, you know, killed," he's not saying, "I'm going to kill you," or even, "I'm going to have you killed." It's just like. You'll get killed. That's what happens. You come up against Rome, you'll get killed. If you come up against Babylon, you'll get killed. Like, do it my way. Yeah. And then when they come against Rome or Babylon and they get killed, 
well, I guess that was the Lord killing them somehow, but <laughs> not, wow. you know. Anyway, the bigger statement that you're making, I, I think it's very fundamental, and even before Noah. Um, John talks, in, in, in the book of John, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and they're saying, we're of our, we're of our father Abraham. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, no, actually, you're of your you're of your father, the devil, who uh, um, who was a murderer from the very beginning, mm. and he seems to be pointing all the way back to Cain, and that um, mankind is organized in societies revolving around violence. That's how it's done, and Jesus is coming and saying. Um, the word I'm bringing you is I, I'm going to create an alternative society organized around love and forgiveness. Mm. And, and you guys are, you know, that's the two choices. It's, it's uh, uh, the demonic empire of Satan, uh, his society rooted in violence ever since Cain, or it's going to be Jesus' way of co-suffering, self-giving love um, for, for brother, sister, neighbor, and enemy. And follow me or don't. Mm. The, the thing that's offensive to me is is uh, when Christianity takes on the system of Cain and then baptizes it in the name of Jesus. And, and I'm like, you know what, you, <laughs> Rayborn, you keep speaking this this thing because this is, this is at the core of Jesus' message in John. Well, I tell you what, what you're saying. I think there's a complete affirmation of that. Like with, it, it just came to my mind while you're saying it. You know how Jesus said the the blood of all of the prophets from Cain all the way through Zechariah will be held account on this generation that he's tracing i mean exactly what you're saying that he's tracing the sin all the way back to Cain it's not even traced to Adam or Eve yeah it that there was a specific kind of sin that he was uh that he was calling out there. I mean, this, this all sounds really very Girardian, you know I mean? It's, it is very um, Girardian. Yeah. yeah. And there's another guy, um, Oh, what's his name? Becker, I think, who's come up with a thing called, um, death anxiety, which would give you the motivation for the violence. And, and so Adam and Eve, um, it's one step back of Girard. And so it'd be Adam and Eve. Um, what's their issue? It's, it's, uh, they, they are afraid of death. And in their fear of death, in their fear of losing, and this isn't just the story of two people from way long ago. This is my story, right? We all mm. suffer this. Um, it's almost like eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil is is coming to an awareness of our mortality, and and it's scaring the hell out of us. And in our death mm. anxiety, we are motivated to um, mimetic violence or this kind of you know our our our, our covetousness, our or fear that others will have what we, you know, and all of that stuff. And you just see it working in Cain until he actually commits this murder. And then he goes off and he establishes cities. And it's like this picture of, um, it, it's not just that we're violent people. It's like we create societies based on that. Mm. Like mm. What, what, what's more taboo than to even ask for a, a, a limitation of the defense budget? Like, oh no, yeah. that's our divine right. We need to have, you know, billions well, and, and billions and billions. And speaking as a, as a citizen of the U.S., you know, I, I recently found out, I guess in the last couple of years, that just blew my mind, is that we spend more on defense than the other top, I think it was the top ten nations or something like that, combined. Yeah. Combined. And I was going, you know, and we call ourselves a Christian nation. 
<laughs> that yeah. somehow somehow we don't you know i mean to me it's the you know that's a whole myth anyway the idea that a nation even could be christian but this this idea that what we've got i mean it's exactly what you're saying with the whole fear thing the fear of mortality with that seems to come a like a a self-preservation instinct that yep. says i will do whatever i have to do to keep what i have to protect what I have and to protect myself and anybody that gets in the way of that, you know, you watch out. Yeah. Yeah. Now if we could, there's something else I wanted to ask you about and check in on. Um, some of our communications, we talked about, about, um, this idea that if God, if God requires our consent, um, what does this do in the whole realm of prayer and healing? And, and yeah. do you want to go yeah. there at all? Absolutely. I had, I've actually got some notes, and that is one of my big ones. <laughs> Let's do it. Do you want to intro that? I'm sorry? Do you want to introduce that? And then... Yeah, you know, that that's one of the that's one of the things I was telling you about that has been really, um, I guess, a splinter in my mind for a long time. Because as I've kind of embraced the idea of the unconditional love of God and of grace and of this kind of thing, I've been struck that it seems like the other side of that coin is this idea that um, that I do have a part to play. So trying to strike the balance between, okay, there is there is a sense in which I'm completely, um, my consent is of the utmost importance as to whether or not I experience God's love, as to whether or not I experience God's grace. Not that he, not to make him love me, but to experience it. And yet, how do you, I guess my, my, my thing that I've really struggled with is how do you find a proper role for prayer, for, um, good deeds, for all of these things in this whole idea of consent without getting into the ditch of, um, how do I know when I'm surrendered enough? How do I know when I'm consenting enough? How do I know when I'm praying enough? How do I know? Because I, I'll be honest with you, for me, Brad, I'm one of these people that, you know, I'm, I have a little bit of uh, some OCD <laughs> hanging around there. And if I, when I get this idea that there's something that's required of me, I run it into a ditch and I, I make it a new yoke that I place up on my neck that um, becomes a real burden for me. So when, when people are hearing what we're talking about, that the idea of consent as, you know, it really does matter. You do have a part to play and, and, you know, that the experience of the wrath of God is you not playing your part. Okay. How do I know when I'm playing my part and when I've done enough and how does that play into God being gracious and the idea of grace being that I don't get what I deserve? Right. Well, to begin with, uh, we're going to have to just warn people. We're not going to have an answer at the end of this. <laughs> this <laughs> there, there's some very frustrating mystery around it, and wow. I, I think I think it's okay to wrestle and grieve it, and and, um, and at the end of the day, plead a bit agnostic about it. Having said that, um, I want to just I'll share how the um, how we could mistake. The theology of consent for sort of the uh, the word faith 
um, the, well, the, there's some actually some very good elements to the word faith movement, but I'm talking about this, certain types of faith healing movements that say, number one, it's always God's will to heal. Number two, if you ask in faith, God will heal. Number three, if you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Right. So then it becomes faith in my faith and so on. And you could go in, in the same ditch, uh, but now instead of it being the faith healers, it's like the contemplatives who would be, well, you're not surrendered enough, you're not consenting enough, you're not... And so the OCD thing you're talking about could really also... It'd be the same kind of burden that's just exactly. as impossible. And it could be... You could be in, in just as bad of a Messiah complex. Um, but I, what I'm... What I'm proposing, I hope, is more textured than that. Um, one thing is that um, in addition to consenting to God's will uh, in my life and for his indwelling spirit to minister supernatural love, I'm also consenting completely to the world that God made. Sometimes that looks like a contradiction. So in the world that God made, um, there's... Somehow diseases are out there. Somehow tragedies are out there. Um, I can. I, I'm of the. I'm. A, I'm a twelve stepper. So I like. I like the serenity prayer. Right. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. So. So. Um, I feel like. I need to. I need to practice. Uh, acceptance of what God wants, and I need to practice acceptance of uh, of what is. And yet, um, and when the two are in conflict, I pray like crazy, and then and mm. then I and then I give the results back to God. So this is how it's opposite of the faith healing thing, is um, um, although I'm I'm inviting and I'm welcoming and I'm I'm consenting and I'm surrendering and I'm and, and I'm pleading for God. For his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So, so like with laying on of hands and all of that stuff, I do all of that. Um, having made my request, I completely detach from the fruit that I'm trying to manufacture. Hmm. There's a kind of a, it's almost ironic that if I, um, that if I, that if I don't surrender the results to God, uh, then I'm still manipulating, and that's not really consent. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I, I like I, I hate uh, seeing people suffer disabilities, and so I pray for them every single week when I'm at a church for the guys that have seizures. I pray and I pray and I oppose it through prayer. Their care workers oppose it through meds. We never assume that God has caused this. Yeah, and then uh, and so I pray. I don't psych myself up with faith because, frankly, some of them haven't improved at all in 13 years of praying every week. So mm. I need to. I need to somehow also accept that God is good and this is what it is. And I'm going to pray again next week. Um, but I, it's not all up to me. Apparently, you know, it's not just that God needs a human partner. I need a divine partner, and th- and He's not a vending machine. Apparently. <laughs> mm. So I'm not satisfied with those answers, and I I, I think I'd be um, troubled if I were satisfied. But let me put it. Let me give you an analogy um, um, where I would struggle, and this would be even 
Now, let's, let me just stand back as a critique of a theology of consent, or a critic of it. Um, it almost, it can sound like we're saying, if you surrender fully, if you decreate your ego sufficiently, if you pay attention perfectly, if you love unswervingly, then God's answer will be invariable and it will be automatic. It's like the electricity is always on and available. We just need to be plugged in, functional, switched on spiritual appliances. See, these are all things I've heard (laughs) in the faith movement. Sure. And so apart from electricity, a toaster can do nothing. And apart from a toaster, electricity won't toast bread. Right. And, And the thing is, Jesus himself is so confident in God's answers according to faith um, first John five is so confident of that um, that that uh, I can see where sort of that Pentecostal triumphalism comes from well, and it seems like Jesus over and over and over again uh, makes a a real correspondence between a person 's healing and and not his ability to heal but their faith I mean over and over again he even goes as far as to say it was your faith that healed you. Like yep. almost like I was, I just mediated the faith, but I didn't really do anything. It was just your faith that healed you. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that, you know. And, and it's and it's part of it. So I would say, okay, so there's a real factor in a theology of consent, where I consent, God, can it be expected to move? When He doesn't move as expected, um, instead of saying you didn't have enough faith, that's exactly the time to exercise faith. I prayed, I expected you to move, I expected you to heal, you didn't heal, and now I will trust you. Not, mm. and now I will conclude I didn't trust you. <laughs> mm. So, mm. so so, my trust then becomes something that even, that, that has to rise to unanswered prayer. It's not a, my faith isn't just a, a proof of, isn't proven by answered prayer, it's also proven by unanswered prayer, if that makes sense. Mm. Mm. I, I'm, I'm not saying I like it. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've well, thousands and you, of people and a lot aren't healed. And so I will either have Messiah complex or I will learn to say, okay, it is what it is. And we're going to try again tomorrow. Let me, let me have you clarify some things for me because this is, this is where the OCD spirituality kicks in for me. <laughs> when I hear you say a term like, uh, I pray like crazy. So what (laughs) what Rayburn's brain translates that to be is that I have to, it's almost like I have to work it up in prayer. And for me, I'm not saying this is at all what you intend, but for me, how I've always done in the past is when I've heard something like that, I've translated that to almost like, there's almost like a sense of bondage for me. Like, when will I ever know that I've prayed enough? When will I ever know that I've said the right things, done the right things, jumped through the right hoops. It almost becomes, and in all honesty, Brad, over the last few years, I've almost swung the, swung the pendulum in the opposite way because I, I just got so weary of uh, always wondering, had I, had I done enough? Had I done everything I could do? Was there something more I could do? You know, I went through the whole giving thing with um and I still have a lot of these tendencies. When I say I went through this, it's not as if I've overcome them. <laughs> it's they're very much still in process. But I guess I recognize them now as the difference. But I remember being in the Word of Faith movement, and there was a lot, a lot about um, talked about about giving. Uh, now, granted, a lot of that had to do with you gave so that you could receive. So you know there was kind of a hook in your giving. 
um, you didn't necessarily do it unconditionally. You did it because you had a need. And if you have a need, you sow a seed, you know. And honestly, what that got translated for me as is every time that I would go and buy something for myself, I could never actually enjoy it. I was always wondering when I bought it, who am I supposed to give this to? I could never just, you know, and even to this day, I have that problem a lot where if I get something, it's never, it's almost like it's never for me. It, it's simply, you know, I'm just simply a vehicle to get it into someone else's hands or, you know, almost like my whole, your whole life just gets interpreted uh, through all of these formulas so that you just never, you never are able just to relax into God, you know? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that and clarified that because I, I am so on your page. I, I, um, you know, when I say pray like crazy, what I, well, I'll tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, when I pray for a friend who's having a seizure, whose face is just full of fear again, I, I do put my heart in it. So, and, um, and, and I think, well, he had another seizure, so I'm gonna. I, I will persist in praying. So, so there is that element, but there's got to be this element too, that I, um, I am, I'm praying um, out of love for him and out of love for God. But if I have, if if my agenda is to produce results, and it, it seems like it should be right, I, I want to see results. Right, right. But there's some there's something about I I have to surrender um, not even just for prayer to work I need to surrender in my prayer and that's what you you use the words resting in God that's what I mean by that mm. where I'm like I am absolutely letting go of the outcome to you now I, I, I kind of put it back into my parts like or back into God's thing then it's like well I prayed and and, and uh, so there <laughs> mm. Mm. This has to be. This has to be uh, your problem again. And and if you if you don't do something about it, I kind of have done what I can do. And then when, so, I don't know what we really expect. Do we really expect no one would ever die ever again, or have a cold, or right, be right. in a wheelchair? Well, man, I don't know. I kind of pray that way, but but I, I don't know how to articulate it well enough to say. Um, trying to surrender enough in order to pursue pursue, uh, pursue results um, is a sure sign that I haven't surrendered because I'm not surrendering mm. the results. Mm. And, and I, f- I hear you there. I hear you there. That makes sense. Yeah, I hear you there. Uh, here, here's where another one of my issues has been, and you know, I, I confess this to you in one of my emails that you know my because of those tendencies I have to. I guess I don't know if part of it is. Like OCD meets over analysis or something. I don't know, but because <laughs> I just think, you know, I think through everything sometimes too much, you know. Um, but for me, even even what prayer is, you know, even this idea, because you know, how formal is prayer? Is it something that you know you're stopping and asking God, or is it even just the thoughts that come to your head? Is it even just you know, you're walking through your day and, and as those thoughts in your mind, that, that, that in and of itself is communication with God. You know, like 
I guess growing up in this whole idea of, you know, you have this time that you set aside every day, a devotional time, which I've given up long ago, but um, this idea that, you know, there's this 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour or whatever it is of quiet time where you read a devotional and you pray, it it just feels so stale and formal to me anymore um, and feels so really binding that I almost wonder, is prayer not more just my awareness of my connection with God, my continual awareness of my connection with God and of his desire to manifest himself through me in whatever situation I'm in. Does that make sense? Well, no wonder he's punishing you. (laughs) 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 Yeah. There's God's wrath right there. (laughs) Turning me over to that OCD. (laughs) Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're really on to something huge there. And it's, it's, um, you know, for me, it's not one or the other necessarily. I, I just think of all the different ways I relate to my wife. You know, sometimes we date, sometimes we play together, sometimes we just veg watching TV, and other times, you know, we we're intimate and so on. And so, I uh, what I hear you doing though is un- unplugging from the, a kind of prayer life that seems to be just an obligated ritual that is yeah. binding, right? Yeah. And I think your awareness absolutely counts. Um, and and to tell the truth, uh, you know, lately uh, my prayer life has I, I'm I'm practicing and experimenting with with this idea of surrender um, uh, to the nth degree. So, for example, last night in our home group, we all shared uh, what what's one cup that the Lord has asked us to drink that really makes it hard for us to trust Him, and we all shared, and there is some pretty heavy stuff in the room. And so so much so that it's like, wow, we don't even know how to pray for that. So we just spent one minute in silence holding the cup up before the Lord. We didn't say anything. We just imagined our cup when we held it there. It's like, well, here, you know, mm. here, you have it. And um, the the uncanny thing is that as we're just, I'm not seeing uh, less results in prayer that way. You know, we... That's how I, I just was praying for a friend with leukemia, and I, I didn't really, uh, I couldn't work up anything other than, well, I'm just going to have to leave them with you, and I really do leave them with you. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you would do if I left him with you, you know? And after mm-hmm. his first round of chemo, he was uh, all the cancer was gone. I'm like, wow, I wish that would work more often. Wow. Maybe I can package it and... <laughs> it's a formula, you know. We'll have the word of Brad movement. How's that? <laughs> yeah, the word of Brad. So I, I have to say that in 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 that case, I didn't I didn't feel any call to striving, and I you know I have to recant and say I didn't pray like crazy. Just like when I thought about him, I, I handed him over to God. And I surrendered. I surrendered um, my will, but I you know I'm like I hope you'll heal him. See that that's the thing about I think and and I hope I'm I hope I'm indicative of some of our listeners that you know when when we talk about a theology of consent that that's one of the natural reactions I think people have is that it all of a sudden and and, and here's here's one of the reasons why I think as ugly as the idea of this um total sovereignty of God theology as ugly as it really is in reality 
think one of the reasons it's so darn attractive in America is because it requires so little of us. You know, we, if, if everything is up to God and nothing's up to us, then we're really off the hook. You know what I mean? And, and so therefore, therefore we don't have to do any kind of striving because I think, I, I think there is, um, a real rest for some people that comes with this idea that even if it's cancer or car wrecks or whatever, that it comes from the hand of God. I myself can't go there. I, I, I wow. see why some people are so comfortable with that because for them it means that, you know, I don't have to blame myself because here's the problem with a lot of, I, I like the way you termed it, tri, uh, Pentecostal triumphalism. Yeah. The problem with it is in some ways it makes you twice the son of hell as what you had under that old Calvinistic theology, because not only, I mean, all of a sudden, okay, God is good. And I see that God wants good things for me, but now a, I don't get results and B, I blame myself. So, whereas if I'm just a Calvinist, I don't get results, but I, I, you know, now I've got the double edged sword of, I don't get results and now it's my fault. So, you know, you become a really miserable person. So I see why some people would kick against the idea of consent. But for me, I want to embrace this because I want, you know, I, I believe with all my heart that God is completely good and that God's never given someone cancer and never caused a car accident and never caused the death of anyone, no matter how bad they are. I believe that with all my heart, Brad. And yep. so I'm trying to work that into my practical everyday life, but that is the other side of it, is that in doing that, it's fi it's trying to find the the sense in which I can believe in consent and still uh, not drive myself crazy and work my finger to the bone for Jesus. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And so I'll, I'll make you a deal. Um, <laughs> you don't have to be God's supernatural partner. <laughs> <laughs> If you will just be his human partner, and mm. then um, and then he will be your supernatural partner, mm. and and then I'll, I'll make you a second deal, and we'll see if you want to do this. Um, the second deal is um, you never have to consent enough; you just have to say yes when he says, "Will you consent?" Mm. So so would so Rayborn, <laughs> would you would you consent to the supernatural love of God borrowing? your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There, you're done. You've done enough there. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. Oh, that's and, freeing. That's yeah, freeing, Brad. Very freeing. And then okay, if you need if you feel like you need to pray a prayer uh when when you want to be that venue, just go with uh, Lord have mercy. Mm. And then you have given all the consent he needs. There may be other factors involved. But wow. your consenting enough isn't one of them anymore at that point. Wow. That helps. That's good. Oh, that helps tremendously because I can't tell you how many times, you know, it's like I remember, and I think other people identify this, you know, when you're, when you're in the heart of evangelicalism and, you know, the sinner's prayer is such a big thing. I can't tell you how many times I pulled over on the side of the road on the way to somebody's house and prayed the sinner's prayer because maybe I didn't say it right before. You know, <laughs> maybe I missed okay. something, you know. Yeah, uh, you missed your meds is what you missed, man. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I totally get the, I totally, you know, the, and it was like that with the left behind thing too, right? How many times were my parents late coming home from work? So I'm on my face 
you yes. know, praying because I've missed the rapture over and over. And I'm so glad to hear somebody else say that. I remember coming home from school <laughs> and nobody being home a few times and <laughs> and being like, oh my God, I've been left behind, you know. <laughs> oh crap, I'm going to be here for seven more years and I'm going to have my head chopped off, you know what I mean? Yeah. That I whole like Larry Norman's idea. rock and roll, but he didn't help the matters, did he? No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. You know, I think that's the thing, Brad, is we've, it seems like we either go into a version of Calvinism that's completely resigned to the way the world is, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, it's God's will, roll with it, or we've jumped into the ditch of Arminianism, which says that everything is up to you, and it's almost, it's almost like a, it can turn into deism, and I think what you're offering is really a harmony of the two. You know, where God is the supernatural partner, you're not. So he is He is almighty, but he's not almighty in the sense of he's in control of everything. But if you surrender to him and simply let him... I, I love the way you said it in one of the emails you said. I just really meditate on this line where you said that God gains entry into the world through things like the faith of Abraham and the surrendered womb of Mary. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I love the way you said that, that God gains entry into the world, that God's not forcing his way in, but instead he looks for ways to enter the world. And it's not looking for it as in, it's almost like with what I've been talking about, about working it up. It's almost like we think we have to roll out the red carpet and make everything just spotless and perfect for him to, to enter. And instead what you're saying is, you know, he's just looking for a rope ladder. <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he'll take what he can get. Yeah, and and uh, like think of Mary's prayer, right? Be it done to me according to your will. You know, just like letting him. Wouldn't that be amazing if if we had a spirituality of letting him? Well, that's the same thing as consent, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And, uh, and he is not just withdrawn to some inaccessible corner of the universe. Um, yeah, he. I believe he has withdrawn and renounced the full exercise of his power. Apparently, if I look around, but but there's also the you know this this crucifixion thing in in the Godhead where where the Son so absolutely consents um, to the Father's will that that through his wounds, like this, just an Agra falls of grace starts pouring into the world because of him. And so we're just kind of little versions of that, right? It's yeah. been through my, through my my life, my hurt, my my little yes to him is love showing up. And um, yeah, do you think that's the that's the whole thing of being crucified with Christ is saying that we'll allow ourselves to be like a lot like what we talked about in our atonement conversation about violence that we will allow evil to do its worst with us so that we can absorb it and extinguish it so that we can, so that we can through our surrendered selves, uh, let God's love overcome it. Sure. Sure. And so any part of my ego or my I capital I, um, that's, that's, that's been crucified or bankrupted or emptied. What I'm doing there is I'm, I'm, I'm creating a void and then, and then, if I refuse to fill that void with false comforts and, and uh, um, distractions and or numbing it out, if I if I hold that void there as a, 
uh, I reserve that place for God, then, yeah, uh, for God's love, then, well, who knows what will happen, but probably it'll look like compassion or something. But isn't that Philippians 2, right? So Jesus yeah. emptied himself. Uh, he was, he, uh, I'm crucified with Christ in the sense that as Jesus emptied himself, I empty myself of self-will and, and, um, and, and prestige and importance. And then I'm like, okay, I'm available here. And that'll take some, sometimes he, he'll want us to wait on that. But, but then, so we take on the form of a servant when we're not a big giant eye walking around, and well, a servant of love, specifically. I love the way you said it, that, um, that I'm trying to think, uh, I wish I could, I wish I could think of the, of the wording that you used, but, um, uh, the fact, oh, I think this is the way you said it, the fact that, that Jesus's self-renunciation, or, or that God's self-renunciation makes space for our world, yeah. that, I, the, the explain that a little bit. That just really registered with me. Well, and vice versa then, too, right? He, then our self-renunciation makes space for him in our world. So he gave us a will so we could give it back to him. Mm. Yeah, I, it's not just um, at the cross, either. It's, it, it really is this idea that, that uh, at one time, all there was was God. And for there to be a world, there, he needed to make space for there to be something that was not God. So, mm. um, and, and then in in this universe that is not God, there, there's that includes me, and I'm just not God, right? But he's ha- he's made space for that, and that's really that that's the source of evil in a sense, but it's also the conditions for love. I mean, this is really registering with me right now. I mean, it's actually this is becoming revelation to me as we're speaking this idea that if God created anything, he had to renounce himself because he filled everything. He was all he, he was everything there was. And so for creation, even to exist, he had to renounce a part of himself. Yeah. And this is wow. what, um, this, now some people, when they read the, um, the, there's this phrase in the, in revelation about, about um, uh, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in general, the majority interpretation of that is that God planned for Jesus to be crucified before all time. Right. Uh, Now, some people won't like this, maybe, but the the Kabbalistic Jews, that was sort of Jewish mysticism, um, their interpretation was actually, well, not of that passage, but it's similar, that that it's kind of... um, um, is, is that God? Uh, God died to being all there is, and to being all powerful in creation. The moment He created us, or created the world, and uh, we would call this kenotic—that's kenosis or self-emptying. So it's kenotic self-renunciation makes space for creation, and it makes space for freedom, and for violence, and for genocide, and hurricanes, and car accidents, and pedophiles, but also for love. Just even the way you just worded that, that the fact that God made space, yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of saying it because before God, if God was everything, it's almost like he had to push himself into a corner somewhat yep. to even have a creation. So yep. just by definition of that, he becomes the servant. Yep. Yeah, wow. exactly. And wow. so, so, and then this maybe is where we can reintroduce um, something all powerful, and that is, 
uh, not all-powerful control and might and force, but only an all-powerful love. That's the only conceivable conceivable power could come into that and make all things new <laughs> after what we've done with yeah. it. You know? Yeah. And his love could do that without violating freedom or law or existence. Yeah, he wouldn't need to intervene or suspend natural or spiritual order because uh, love is just fill. I mean, it, it, it's the all-powerful uh, final word. It's the thing that through human mediation can fill the world and, and change it and restore it. That would take an all-powerful love. And um, thankfully it showed up in Jesus to begin, but it starts like a seed, right? And Well, I think that that explains, you, you said something in one of your emails to me that really, I think, goes along with that. Um, I'm going to quote you on it. You said, God consents to our reluctance to consent, resulting in this painfully slow but inexorable, inexorable transfiguration of our violent world. And I think that's it's that whole thing of, what is it, First or Second Peter, where he says God's not slack concerning his promises, but, uh, but he's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So it's almost like, you know, we've had this idea through... I guess through Arminianism and the idea of free will, it's almost like, you know, we've, I heard for a long time that hell was, um, hell existed because of free will, that an eternal hell existed because God had to have a place to send people that didn't choose him. But it's almost like we're able to harmonize everything through this theology of consent in the sense of you almost get to have your cake and eat it too, in a way, in that God uh, God is all good and all loving, so he won't do violence and he won't, he won't do intervention in the sense of breaking uh, supernatural, natural law. But in the end, it's kind of that first Corinthians 15 thing where it says, you know, that, uh, that after, after everything's been reconciled, that God will be all in all, that God is all in all. So all of a sudden it goes from before creation, God is all. To at the end, once again, everything is in God. That Very good. He yeah. is all. So he, it's almost like he gets to, he is all powerful in that sense of he will eventually get what he's wanting, but he refuses to to do it the violent way, which is why it's taken so darn long, right? Yeah. Well, if we're right, then, um, my, you know, then this idea of a, a of a any day second coming. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was thinking about this. It's there there's a verse I think it's Jesus who actually says uh, it may not be, but the idea that every eye will see him. Uh-huh. And I was thinking about the eyes of our heart, right? It's not our physical eyes that see him. It's not it's not like you're gonna see, you know I think we mentioned this one other episode. It's not the second coming is not so much about Jesus flying, you know, through the air on a horse over every territory in the world or even um, getting on CNN to make sure, you know, he is well. <laughs> but the, it, it, the thing that sees him is the eyes of our heart. What if, what if someday every eye will see him? Wow. What, what wow. if the God of this age who has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot believe, well, what if that veil is taken away and the God who said, let there be light, says, let there light be light not only in our hearts, but in, so that every eye could see him. Wow. Well, you know, that might be an intervention of sorts, but it's certainly not a violent one, and it won't require uh, 
most of the world to get left behind in hell on earth. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Well, I mean, and it, and then it goes on to say that when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is, which explains that whole thing about you know God being all in all. That to see him is to automatically become like him. It's yeah. to automatically be conformed to the image that you behold. Yeah. Kind of that. And, I guess it's that Second Corinthians thing where it talks about in the ministry of the new covenant that the veils removed. And we behold the we behold the image of God as in a mirror, and we're conformed to that image from glory to glory, that kind of thing. Yes, literally transfigured. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And wow. and maybe uh, automatic might be the right word. Although I'd also say, who knows how long that would take? Maybe it's a maybe it's an instant transformation in the blink of an eye, or or maybe it's a, a working through our things in the presence of Jesus. Who knows? He just doesn't say right. But right. the fact is, what's what's the uh, what's the active ingredient? It's it's this encounter with the glorious love of Jesus. Mm. Mm. Wow, wow, that really is. I mean, to me, that reconciles a whole lot of a whole lot of problem things. When you get into the whole idea of theodicy, you know, it seems like you can't, you can never have your cake and eat it too. And to me, it seems like you kind of get to do that in this idea of consent because, and, and, and Brad, for me, I guess one of the big things anymore, and I know some of our listeners might not like me saying this, I don't know, but anymore, a big measuring stick for me is the whole idea of violence. And here you have a way of accounting for God's power and God's love. And you keep God, you keep God's hands from being stained with violence. And yeah. to me, that's huge because, you know, at the end of the day, more and more, I guess for me, of of the few absolutes I'm holding to nowadays, it seems like one of those really is the nonviolence of God and the idea that God will not cause, that he, he won't cause harm to anyone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I um, I just found this great quote the other day, uh, and it, it, what it, the other thing it does is it takes seriously people's real experience of the hiddenness of God. Mm, mm. And so um, this quote I found uh, it's uh, it's talking about the, the woman I'm studying, Simone Weil. It's a, a book about her, and and the author says the hiddenness of God in Simone Weil is an honest attempt to confront the devastating presence of violence and oppression in history and nature. In a, in a haphazard and indiscriminate manner, force strikes whole communities and histories of innocent persons and non-persons. Theodicies become idols when force and suffering are reduced to the punishment of sin and the chaotic rule of force is neglected. By attention to such unjust force in history and nature, they confronts the hiddenness of God and God's seeming complicity in the face of destructive violence. As Job exclaims, if not he, then who else? Hmm. God as power is seen to be, if not the cause, at least complicit in the affliction of beings. God appears to be impersonal and indifferent to human well-being. And then, um, but in the end, finally, for they, the presence of evil is resistant to all explanations, including the simple and outright repudiation of God. So, so what she, what he's saying is, um, our theodicies aren't going to work in, in the end very well, especially if they're based in God is punishing us, or, yeah. or you know, chaos is doing its thing, or 
I, that's what I'm, I, I'm seeking to do with this, this theology of consent, is to, is to say uh, we've been way too easy with, with our answers. I hope I'm not just giving another system. Sure. I hope, I hope I'm saying uh, I'm still puzzled at the end of the yeah. day, but, yeah. but I'm not, I don't need to blame God, and I don't need to blame me, but I, I know what to do, and that is to surrender. Well, and, and, and that's the thing is that, you know, at the end of the day, the thing that we have to have, I believe, in absolute, an absolute trust in is that God is good. Because I, I, you and I talked on, uh, on a previous episode, and, you know, I told you then, and, and I don't think I overstated it at the time, that I'm at the place now where, you know, I, I don't know that I could serve a God who, who was, you know, the good guy and the bad guy all wrapped up in one. I don't, you know, I don't know that I could do that anymore. Um, there was a time when, when whoever God was, whatever he looked like, I just wanted to, to be on board with him. But more and more, when I think about that, it sounds a lot like someone in Nazi Germany who just wants to align their lives with Hitler and the Nazi party so that their life will go well in Germany and they won't have to, you know, encounter any obstacles. And I don't know that there's virtue in that really, Brad. I, I think that I think it's incumbent upon us to to really if we've got this thing in our hearts that this this bent towards love that we've got to follow that wherever it leads us and I think so much of our theology has been shaped outside of that outside of the revelation of God in the face of Jesus um that we end up with this God that just really I don't know sickens me to be honest with you let me ask you. Oh, his first John, you know, where he says, "I'm glad you feel that way, <laughs> because <laughs> uh, in Him is light, and 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 there's no darkness at all." Yeah, yeah. But we we've allowed a lot of darkness into our theology of God, yes. and, and some of it even through how we read the Bible. For sure. Well, I think Calvin even talked about the dark side of God, you know, and I think. Golly, how can you reconcile that? <laughs> I mean, he, it's almost like it sounds more like the Force from Star Wars, you know, than it does yeah. a personal God, you know. Yeah. Let me ask you another thing: when it comes to um, when it comes to consent and this idea that we're vessels through which God can enter the world, um, and then you talk about praying, you know, in in this idea of consent, praying for other people and and ministering to other people. Here's something I've always wondered. I I have believed for a long time that it's always God's will to heal everyone. And I've believed that I can receive that myself personally um, because, you know, no one's responsible for me but me type thing. Mm-hmm. Where I've really had a problem is in understanding, and I don't know that there's really an answer to this, but I'd like to get your insight on it, in understanding the dynamic in... Uh, using your faith or or being a vessel through which God can release his healing or his um, his will in someone else's life because you've got these examples like um, where Jesus is you know teaching in the one house and the men come and they lower the paralytic through the roof and Jesus looks at them and he's and he's talking about the guy the the people that have brought this man and they say it's your faith that's healed this man basically yeah. Um, they don't, they don't even, he doesn't attribute anything to the paralytic. And then you've got other places where Jesus 
says that he could do no mighty work because of their unbelief, talking about the people, which almost seems to, it, 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 it kind of begs the question, at what point are you crossing the line with trying to trust God for someone else's circumstances um, instead of teaching them how to trust God themselves? You know what I mean? Like, where do you cross that line between what you're responsible for and what they're responsible for? Yeah, that's that's difficult, hey. Because um, the yeah. passages passages you mentioned, they they actually kind of do play into um, uh, a view of faith that that where the mechanical element of faith, and, and yeah. I'm and I'm not rejecting that at this point. I'm saying there appears to be in those passages a mechanical element to faith. Where it's not about me personally asking God a question, uh, a request, and Him personally responding with a healing, it's like I tap into a law of the universe, and and Jesus comes along and goes, "Wow, look what you did!" Yeah, and, yeah. And I think that's part that is that is one of the laws of the universe, and that's why it's not just Christians that can do it. There's there's mm. tons of faith healing uh, among Hindu gurus in, in India, for example. Um, huh. And, and does that mean that they're, you know, that they serve the one true God? No, it just means they've 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 tapped into one of these laws. And um, also, is that all there is to healing? Absolutely not. <laughs> so hmm. um, I don't. I'm. I I think that there's a kind of real, you know, mind control and asceticism and all of that that can work those things. That's just not the. In fact, we believe in our church that God told us not to go through that door. We believe that he said to our church, um, if you'll surrender to my love, uh, then just let my love produce the fruit of healing where it wants to. Mm-hmm. So instead of so whether it's for myself or for you, let's say if you're sick or whatever, it's like, well, my first job is to be a, is, is, to, is to be a home for God's love. And if I'm a home for God's love, then maybe or maybe not, I'll be really good at healing, or I might be really good at comforting, or I might be really good at silent companionship, or I might have words of life that, you know, um, but some some kind of fruit will come from love. And that's sort of the way we're working it. And I think there that might not be the only way either. It's just as best we can tell, that's what he showed us to do. Mm. Mm. So it's a, just a matter of God manifesting his compassion and letting yeah. him pick how he wants to do it through who he wants to do it with. That's right. And and there's yeah. some good historical precedent for this in the healing movement. Um, I took a, a course one time with a guy named Ken Davis on uh, charismatic movements in church history. And he wasn't very pro-charismatic, but he was extremely fair. And what he what he did was he demonstrated that there were a lot of healing movements that started as compassion movements. That hmm. they began as, um, let's say, setting up a hospice for people with TB, and just through the love and the care of the of, of the workers um, who were taking care of the patients with with TB, and they, and just did it, and it included praying for them. But they weren't expecting to heal them, and then all of a sudden, some of them started getting healed, and this this increased, and. This has happened a number of times, and I thought, well, that would be a safe way in, right? Because then my agenda is not to be impressive. My agenda is not to even tell God what to do, but it's 
if I can love someone so much that their sickness begins to wither up in the face of my love, then then that's a very clean way of entering a healing movement. Wow. Which really bears witness with the ministry of Jesus, because, you know, so many times when he would say, you know, don't go tell anyone I did this, or the time when he led the guy outside the gate and healed him without anybody watching, right. you know, I think to myself, I'm like, you know, Jesus wasn't about building a, you know, I, I for so long have been exposed to this idea that signs and wonders are kind of like God's calling card to get people in the kingdom. And now I am so on the opposite page of that, because I think if God does something in your life, he does it because he loves you, period. Not because he's trying to somehow use you to get to somebody else. I don't think God uses people. I don't think oh. he, you know, I've, I've heard so many times people, you know, pray, God, please use me. And I'm thinking, you know, if you said that about your wife or a boyfriend or something like that, that would be a real, that would be something that people would really find insulting, that they were just using you. Right. And yet somehow when we talk about God, it's okay. Mm. It's okay for God it. to use people, you know, to, to use healings to draw people to himself. It's almost like, it almost makes it sound like God didn't really care about the person that was getting healed as much as he did the, you know, 150 people that were going to get a, get saved as a result of watching that. You know, <laughs> just yeah, kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. And it seemed to be, a, you know, Jesus' anointing was a compassion anointing quite often. For, yeah. You know, you'd look on the crowds, see them as sheep harassed, which, like, you know, without a shepherd, and compassion would stir them. And then that would propel them into a healing thing, not, not to, let's build this kingdom thing here, or like a, yeah. a movement. You find Jesus just refusing that so many times. You know, they try and forcibly take him and make him a king and you know he runs from that kind of thing and he runs from publicity and runs from you know crowds but he runs toward people you know he runs he runs away from crowds but he runs to people and i think that's you know that's one of the things that i think myself um in thinking about faith and in thinking about all these things you know i hear all the time about all these miracles overseas and in third world countries and all of that. And people are always saying, you know, why, why don't we have that in North America? You know, why don't we see the supernatural in the West? And, you know, a lot of times I I think it does just come down to our motives. I mean, so many times our motives are, are not at all about the people that we're praying for or people or the people that we're ministering to. It's really about the crowds that we want to, to garner as a result of that person, you know, getting healed. And I think that's kind of a sick motive myself. Mm. Yeah. Well, good stuff. This is, uh, (laughs) we've kind of, we kind of (laughs) went all over the place with this idea of consent. Is there, is there anything that you'd like to, that stone that I've left unturned that you wanted to talk about or that you felt like we needed to bring into the conversation? No, I think I think we've been pretty thorough, and since <laughs> I've only been meditating on this a couple months, whereas usually the stuff we talk about, I've been working at it for years. Um, I'm just checking, I'm testing the edges of it with you, actually, and and yeah. I've really appreciated your input. And some of the questions you've asked um, over email uh, were actually holes that need to be filled and addressed and critiqued, and those will get in my thesis so you're going to be in a scholarly book somewhere along the way (laughs) (laughs) well that sounds kind of fun (laughs) well like i said like i told you before i am completely honored 
to be able to talk this stuff out with you. And that's one thing that, um, that we've really wanted the podcast to become is kind of a forum where people can, you know, we, one of the intros that we used to do talked about thinking out loud, you know, that that's what we're wanting to do is be able to think out loud and not have a real polished answer and not have a real, you know, definitive, uh, view on something, but a, be able to talk it out, to test it, you know, to see if it held water and, and, you know, throw, throw ideas against the wall and see which ones stick. And yeah, so Brad, yeah. you don't know, know how much I really appreciate the fact that you're letting us do that with you. <laughs> it's uh, it really is an honor, really is an honor guys. We are, we're just so grateful to have you guys with us. Thank you so much for sticking around. Um, make sure to check out Brad's website, bradjerzak.com. And Brad, I noticed uh, through some of my stalking that <laughs> yep. you now have a YouTube channel, which I think is really cool. And you've got some great stuff on there. So guys, if you'll visit YouTube, just search Brad Jerzak. You'll find some great um, videos on listening prayer, which is actually one of the things that you're really, um, that, that you really are seasoned in, isn't it, Brad? Yeah, I've been working on that for about 25 years now. Yeah. So you also have a book on it. Can you hear me? I think, is it? That's right. It's called "Can You Hear Me?" and it and it always annoys me when people say, uh, "Don't you have a book called God? Can you hear me?" Or I'm like, "No, no, it's God asking the question. He, he's asking us, can you hear me?'" And so the subtitle is "Tuning Into the God Who Speaks," mm. and it's a practical, uh, uh, biblical foundation, historical, and then lots of exercises. I think I've got uh, 33 exercises and uh, many testimonies just on. Uh, learning to hear God's voice and and to discern uh, His voice from the competing voices, and uh, and we also have a children's version of it that I think people would would dig. Children, can you hear me? Is that the name of it? That, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are are the books available just through your website, or can they get them anywhere? Um, uh, they can get them on my website, and they're also on Amazon. Okay. Great. So make sure to check out bradjerzak.com. Uh, you know, make sure to check out the YouTube channel and just look into some of Brad's books. I think you'll really enjoy it. Also on YouTube, you've got some great videos. We, you know, we've talked so much about Eastern Orthodox theology with you um, over several episodes. And you've got some really fun sit-down conversations that you've done with uh, Lazar Pahalo and and uh some other guys that I, I think people would really enjoy that have listened to the podcast. So make sure to check those out guys. Um, you can go stalk Brad kind of like I have and <laughs> glean some good things. <laughs> Brad, thanks so much for being with us guys. We will see you next time. Have a great day. Wow. That's really good stuff. Brad, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I so enjoy every conversation I have with you. You're such a great guy, and I just really appreciate your insights. Um, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Guys, listeners, thank you so much for being a part of this, for taking the time to listen. I hope you guys really enjoyed the conversation. Now we want to hear what you have to say. Um, you can join us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash beyond the box. And yeah, that's right. I started to say beyond the box podcast, but it's facebook.com slash beyond the box. Or you can join the conversation on Twitter, although we don't really do a lot on Twitter. It's more just for notifying you when new episodes have come out. Um, if you want to check out our Twitter feed, that's twitter.com slash btbpodcast. You can comment also on our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com. We'd love to interact with you there. 
Um, and also, if you'd like to call and leave an audio comment, or maybe you would leave to, like to leave an idea suggestion in audio form that we could play on the podcast, um, you can just call the number 626-24-NO-BOX. That's 626-246-6269. Or you can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Go on the right-hand side of the screen. You'll see a little place that says, leave an audio comment or call me, a widget that says, call me. Just click that call me button and a little box will pop up asking for your name and number. Just put that name and number in there, hit connect, and our answering service will actually call you back and let you leave that message. So that's a, that's a really great way to leave your feedback as well. However you do it, we'd love you to join the conversation. I would love to hear your thoughts on this theology of consent. Do you see holes in it? Do you see um, places where it could help you in your own spiritual walk? Do you think there's something that's missing from the conversation that maybe we should add to it? I know Brad would love to hear your thoughts. Steve would love to hear your thoughts. And I would love to hear your thoughts. So however you get in touch with us, go ahead and shoot us your comments. We'd love to dialogue with you. Um, and any anytime you want to email me and Steve privately, if you want to do that, if you don't feel comfortable putting it out there for everyone to see, that's fine as well. You can just go and you can uh, email us directly from the website, or you can simply email me at ray at beyondtheboxpodcast.com or email Steve at steve at beyondtheboxpodcast.com. Guys, we thank you so much for listening. Really appreciate each and every one of you and look forward to interacting with you on a theology of consent and many other things in the future. God bless you guys. Talk to you soon.